Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. Welcome back to Fraudology. I am here with David Maimon, and David is a professor at Georgia State University. He's a professor of criminology and criminal justice, and he heads up the evidence-based cybersecurity research group at Georgia State University. And I first learned about David when he started to post some very interesting and provocative videos and pictures from Criminal Underground specific to check fraud, because that was something that Frank McKenna had put on my radar right around the same time. But really appreciate his knowledge and have gotten to appreciate his perspective on fraud. And it's different than a lot of people who listen and then my own perspective. So definitely wanted to have him on the podcast. David, thank you so much and welcome to Fraudology. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. I really enjoy LinkedIn. I think everyone who listens to this knows that. I think it's a great way for professionals to get to know people who are interested in similar things. And oftentimes in our space, the cybercrime area, we'll see a lot of solution providers posting, you know, these thought pieces or buzzwords or whatever. But I think those of us who know the space can kind of suss that out and be like, okay, that person knows what they're talking about. And they're not just posting an example. They're explaining it and not claiming that they know everything. I appreciate that about all of your posts. I'm at the very least think everyone should be following you. But I would love to just understand a little bit or help my audience understand a little bit how you got into, I don't know, I guess you're one of the first academics I know to be studying cybercrime in the way that you are and our world. So how did you get into that? It's, but to tell the truth, by by incident, right? I did not mean to study online fraud. Um, Most of us didn't though. That's right. It's all by by accident. I think that's the, it's, that's why it's fun to ask. Well, yeah. So I came here to the States and after my MA in sociology, I pursued my PhD in The Ohio State University, sociology. My area of research back then was focused on neighborhoods. So I was really interested in understanding how the neighborhood within which you live in, grow up in, influence your deviant outcomes. So violent outcomes, suicide, crime, these kind of really fun activities. And, uh, and I studied for four years Completed my PhD. And uh, at some point when after graduating and getting my first position as a professor, I, I simply didn't like it anymore. So I couldn't really understand how I'm doing what I'm doing and make sense out of it speaking. Because he deal a lot with data, survey data, which was collected a couple of years ago speaking. And, and then you're trying to make sense out of it and try to come up with prediction with respect to how things look like in the real world. And it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And the academic environment also was very interesting, to say the least. So I told my wife that I want to uh, just drop it all and I want to pursue another PhD in marine biology. I'm a true scientist, I think, in my nature and like discovering things. And I think that's what was bothering me during the neighborhood research. I didn't feel like I actually do that. So Mm. I wanted to be in the deep, in a submarine, 
back then, we didn't really have any videos or even images of the giant squid. And the giant huh. squid, I know that this beast lives in the deep. And when I graduated, there was this Japanese professor who was looking for the, the, uh, this beast in the deeps, trying to film it, trying to take pictures. And I wanted to be him, so to speak. I told my wife, I'm going to go to Australia, pursue my PhD and take a submarine and just be there in the deep. She told me, it's fine. You can do that, but uh, you can do it without me. Like, yeah, she didn't want to be poor for four more years. Because I love my wife, I had to stick around. And, uh, and academia was interesting in the sense that it allowed me to explore other things, right? that potentially I could have studied. And at the time I got another position, I moved from Miami to the University of Maryland, their department of criminology, very good department. And uh, I talked to a few of my colleagues and one of them suggested a look into the issue of cyber terrorism and cybercrime because, you know, it was a big name and I was this assistant professor trying to make my first steps in academia, working towards tenure. I, of course, listened to that person and another professor and that was the Best advice I got, I think, because I realized, and that was 2010, that there, there wasn't back then a whole lot of good research on the issue of cybercrime. Yeah. And I thought that this potentially could be my deeps. I potentially could explore and discover new things. And that's why I started you know, diving and understanding, trying to understand topics like hacking, right? Understand how hackers behave during the progression of a criminal event during the progression of a hack, try to understand fraudsters and how they communicate with their victims, how they lure their victims to comply with their requests. In, in 2018, Georgia State reached out. They recruited, they said that I should come here to Atlanta and open my own group and do that with all the resources I needed. And I decided to accept the offer and that's what I do for a living. It's awesome. It sounds and I think like a lot of us in on the fraud prevention side, whether it's in private or government or whether it's private banking or e-commerce, we all want to have impact as well and want to have at least a little bit of an influence on protecting people and often have a sense of justice. I also was very fascinated by sociology in university, so it doesn't surprise me at all there. I did think it was funny that you took that right turn on, you know, marine biology, but I can understand where you were thinking, right? It, I think Studying neighborhoods and data and things like that is so far removed from your subjects. You're not actually part of the research or really getting up close. Yeah. Whereas being in a submarine looking for a giant squid, you are doing the action. You're not just looking at spreadsheets and all that. And I think that there are great people in the world who need to be looking at the spreadsheets and doing yeah, the things and doing the sustaining and doing the, the cogs in the wheel, so to speak. But I certainly have never been one of those people either and wanting to do all that. So I think all of us in different ways, those of us who are fascinated by cybercrime, whether it's wanting to figure out how to prevent it or, well, and really understanding it is also trying to figure out how to prevent it too, is we have a lot of similarities, even if we're looking at it from different perspectives. Yeah, I, I agree. Again, to me, it's all about curiosity. I, if I'm curious about mm -hmm. something, it makes me tick and it makes me motivated and I would like to understand it and I, I will do everything in my power in order to really understand it. And I agree with you 100%. The folks who look at spreadsheets that I'm, I have the most appreciation for them, I just can't do that. Me too. And I, because <laughs> I have, and this is part of the reason why I couldn't do it. I have questions I want to answer for myself. And when I'm looking at a database that, Ooh the end of the day, someone else collected, I, in a way, I'm analyzing and trying to answer questions that are not really mine. And yeah. so when I'm in the deep, 
Or right now, when I'm collecting data directly from the field in the context of fraud, in the context of hacking, in the context of online grooming, in the context of all this really tremendous research that uh, my group is involved in, we're collecting data which correspond with the questions we have in mind. And so the answers we get, the answer for the question, I want to answer. And I love that. that makes me really happy, right? I wake up in the morning and every day is really a new day. I'm not, we're not doing the same thing over and over again because you're constantly there. And as the online fraud ecosystem changes on a daily basis. Oh, yes, it does. And we're there and we're seeing that. And we, I feel like I evolve with it, right? I think that it makes me a better scholar, better researcher. And, and I really enjoy this process. So. Talk to me a little bit about how you're co collecting that data. When you say you're in the deep, I know that you have access to a lot of different forums and different types of criminal networks. We often will call it the dark web just for shorthand. But what are you collecting? Where are you collecting it from? What's the context? When we moved to Georgia State and got the position here, I got the opportunity to open my own group. And back then we were shooting everywhere, right? It was the new group. We we're trying to figure out where we want to drill. And so we started a slew of projects starting in, of course, hacking, moving to online grooming, then of course, online fraud. And we we're doing a lot of research. The common denominator across all of projects was the darknet and the dark web. We realized that in order for us to really understand the criminals, we need to dive to the darknet and uh, simply start collecting data. So at the time, we're talking about almost five years ago now, we hired a bunch of students who developed the tools we needed back then to simply go on the darknet, monitor large number of markets, darknet, darknet markets, markets in which you can find drugs and guns and of course identities and credit cards and bank accounts. And, and, uh, and we simply downloaded all the information to our servers and started analyzing it in order to try and understand what folks are talking about in the context of those three areas of research I was just you know, talking about. Online fraud played a really key role in that sense, because as I assume the listeners know, the darknet is one of the you know, major grounds um, fraudsters to sell and purchase any type of commodities which will advance their fraudulent activity. But that was five years ago, but four years ago, I realized that people begin to leave the darknet. And as yeah. I said earlier, this is one of the reasons why I really love what I do, right? I don't have a set operation where I have to do this because someone tells me. I, I, I do what I think the fraudsters, they follow the fraudster to whatever they go. So I started to see many of the fraudsters move from the darknet to encrypted communication platforms such as ICQ and, and Telegram and WhatsApp. Mm -hmm. So of course, we followed them. And, and that was really early years in which those shops started to emerge. And with the help of many students, we established many sock puppets, embedded ourselves on thousands of those markets, gained some credibility, of course, using those mm -hmm. sock puppets. And, and now we're there. Started collecting data in a systematic manner from those forms three years ago, monitoring the ecosystem and what people are talking about, what type of fraud folks are working on. And because we were there since the beginning, so to speaking, we have access to many lucrative groups and platforms, which we can see a lot of really cool information. Yeah. So I'm familiar with the term sock puppet, but for those that aren't, could you just expand a little bit on that as far as being embedded, why it's important to go that method? 
Sure. So a sock puppet is essentially a fictitious identity that you establish on an online platform. Creating so identity fraud name. against again, identity thieves, basically. Probably. Yeah. You, you assume someone else's identity in order to log in to a form. Of right. course, given the type of people we're, we're talking to and monitoring, we don't want people to know who we are. No. So you have Aliases. to use someone else's identity. And that's essentially what we do. A lot of yeah. phone numbers are being used in this sense and a lot of email addresses. That's part of the reality of collecting data in those, in those platforms. I would assume you're creating those email addresses and those phone numbers. It's not like you're stealing them from legitimate people. Oh, no. Oh. Yeah, I assume. I just, knowing my audience, I'll clarify that. Yeah, but no, it, we work for your university. Right. Um, for any type of research we conduct, the, uh, we have what we call the institutional review board which mm. verifies that we keep with the institution ethic and yeah. we do not steal, we do not, we, we do not engage in crime in order to right. steal crime. That's, that goes without saying. Yeah. I think that the closest thing to what you, what you and your team do in the private sector as far as industry is dark web monitoring companies. And some of them will just set up scans and things like that and provide public feeds to public information. The challenge with that, of course, is that's just what's public and anyone can get that, right? But what really is valuable is being in the room where it happens, where the conversations are having about how are you attacking this? What are you doing? How and why? And really, the only people that are generally allowed in those rooms are the ones who suck around the longest. So the fact that you have been there for five years is pretty significant, especially because obviously we saw the cybercrime market and just the sheer numbers of people involved in cybercrime just I explode in 2020 uh, okay. for various reasons, mostly because the U.S. government was just kind of handing out money, which you and I both have shared some frustrations with privately about because we both tried to warn multiple, all of them all the time when it was happening. But it's frustrating when you see a fire across the street and you know how to put it out. You're just like, please trust me that I see smoke. But at the same time, like there are companies who will just scan them. So that's why I always tell people when they're talking to those types of companies, figure out how they're gathering their data, what their data sources are and what their methods are. Because to your point, if you just were to start up a new company today and try to go in, you can't act too eager because they're suspicious too, right? They know that obviously law enforcement and others are trying to get in. So the longer you are there, the longer you are participating enough for them to think you're one of them. The more they trust you and then when they move, when they migrate to another area, they bring you with them. Is that mm -hmm. a pretty good it's, summation of them? It's a pretty accurate summation of the operation. Yeah. But what we do, and this is something we started five years ago in the darknet, yeah. on a systematic manner, we downloaded information directly from those platforms. So trying to really quantify in the context of the darknet, it was how many drugs we're seeing, what mm -hmm. type of drugs, the prices of drugs, in the context of guns, same thing. What type of guns we're seeing there in the context of fraud, of course, we're looking for identities, credit cards, compromised bank accounts, checks, of course. It was forged checks back then. We were in, we were in the darknet and we're simply tallied on a weekly basis how many guns have we seen and what time? Hmm. How many identities have we seen and from where? We also engaged with some of the actors on the dark net at the time. And, and yeah, because of this engagement, we realized that folks are essentially moving to those platforms we just talked about earlier. And so when we moved and realized that people actually open shops on those platforms, we simply started doing the same thing in the context of, of those platforms. So now we do count, but we actually count pretty much the same thing, but on those platforms, looks like the criminals feel more comfortable to share more 
than they they shared on the darknet. Yeah. So in the past on the darknet, you were able to count the number of ads of folks talking about the number of checks they can sell you. Now I'm seeing the checks. So now mm. I'm counting checks. If folks talked about a dump with identities that able to sell and then provided maybe 13 identities for you to play with and test whether those are legit or not. Now I'm seeing on a daily basis, these guys disclosing hundreds of identities, hundreds of driver licenses. And we're see, we see the raw material. The process of counting or the task of counting has become, I wouldn't say more sophisticated, but more complicated because we need to have more people and we need to have more resources because there's really a lot going on on those platforms. But at the end of the day, I think it's important for us to do that because that's the only way you can identify the development of new trends. Yeah. Uh, without us systematically, in, in a very tedious manner, counting how many checks, how many identities, how many driver licenses, how many accounts, how many compromised accounts. Without us doing this on a weekly basis, there's no way you, we would have been in a position to start talking about emerging trends and try to raise red flags with respect to things like SBA loans that we started to see in early 2020. Employment benefits that we started to see in, in early 2020. And again, once you do that in a systematic way, you see how things explode, right? At the beginning, you see them focused on, on certain places, yeah, on low numbers. Then you start seeing them in other locations, but then you see how things begin to diffuse and start to get crazy all over the place because you simply look at the numbers. And again, to me, it's fascinating. This is part of the reason why I really like what we do. It's fascinating because you see it growing. And then at some point, and in 2022, we start to see this shift. You start to see things die out, right? Mm -hmm. So we start to see people no longer submitting SBA loans, or at least they're not talking about it on the platform we right. oversee. Well, the money you still see unemployment benefits, but not to the same extent. Yeah, yeah there's a couple of states but, here and there. Oh, that's what I said. But then you see a couple of states where people are still going back and they talk about the fact that they're still hitting them and they show evidence. So I really like that. I mean, this is the ecosystem. And, and yeah, that's what we do. And, and I'm proud of it. I think, I think it's a very good service and important service to the industry. I've seen so much anecdotal examples of what you're just talking about now. And I think calling it an ecosystem is so brilliant. And there's so many analogies you can tie and you already have in a way it kind of visualizes it as your version of marine biology and going into the deep, right? And being in your submarine, tracking these creatures and these research subjects. And I know just kind of going back a little bit, everyone on this podcast has heard a bazillion times that we can, of course, we can always relitigate unemployment fraud and SBA loan, et cetera. However, I think where you're coming at it from is really interesting. And I saw that too. I was working at the time with somebody who had quite a bit of advanced telegram access as well in a lot of the groups. He allowed me to be able to provide information to the states that they wouldn't have gotten otherwise. And one of them did hire us and it wasn't a situation where extortion, in fact, I gave a lot of information just here. I don't want you to hire me. I just want to give it to you. But being able to say, hey, now that you identified that they're all putting money, they're opening accounts in this bank and that bank, now they're all moving to this bank. Okay, this is where they're all moving now. And we could do it in real, almost real time because you could see who was posting it and who was sharing it with their friends. And to your example, like, just like you said, in the dark web, it was all ads, right? It was a lot of like classified ads. 
other people were gathering the information. What we saw, what I saw at least when we saw moving, I just say Telegram in general, but it's Telegram, WhatsApp, ICQ, you know, all the things that you talked about too. You can, it's really this like team effort. It's like this citizen brigade or crowdsourcing and they're all copying each other and that's for better and for worse in a lot of ways. But it was almost like daily. You could see, oh, okay, yep. They realize, okay, we put this, we told the state to put this block in place with what very limited tools they had in place, which is very long story we can talk about another time. Okay, this is what they have available. So put this lock in place. Oh, tomorrow they're going to this bank and they've figured out exactly how to open up drop accounts in this bank. And now they figured out how to find mules here to transfer the money. And then I'm talking to people at the banks and they're saying, oh my gosh, I'm seeing this activity over here. So I was having conversations while you were looking at the numbers. I was having conversations with the humans that are in charge of that going, holy cow, like, we didn't even know anyone knew that our little digital bank existed. And now all of a sudden, our marketing team's so excited because there's all these account openings, but I'm seeing a lot of shady activity. And it is just like an ecosystem. It is. And it's, and so exactly what you're saying, we're seeing just with numbers, right? So yeah, which we have, is think, so much more important than anecdotal, by the way. Like I get excited about those conversations and things, and it really helps me understand what's going on in the industry and being able to help my clients or speaking at events or on the podcast or whatever about these are the trends we're seeing from this side. But I think you guys counting, being because I wouldn't even begin to try to count it because I wouldn't feel like I had a good handle. I wouldn't feel like I had a good enough view of anything. But because you have built all of these things the right time in the right place, you're now able to have a good idea. It's not that you're going to have all of them, but a very good sample size. We are dealing with mountains of data on a oh weekly God. basis. I have stu students, they love the work, but it's a lot. It's, think about it. We sit in thousands of, thousands of markets. And we sell information from those markets on a weekly basis. It's just sheer volume of the data we have, right? So we talk about fraud, but the group also does a lot of research in the context of drugs and guns and counterfeit products. That is something that right. we started to see more and more developing. And it's really interesting, right? Because you see where things are coming from and you see the supply chain as well there. So to me, again, it's fascinating. And uh, you're right. One of the things we see is we see how the tools folks are using right now really impacting the ecosystem. So you were talking about the fact that we were talking to one of the states and you told them this is how they do things. And then you saw people mm -hmm. moving to another state or another bank. That's exactly what we see like by simply running a yeah, natural experiments, a list of natural experiments, right? Because we, we do have relationship with financial institutions. We do have relationship with governmental agencies and they tell us what they do. And then we test how what they do manifests itself in the ecosystem. For example, in the context of two-factor authentication, mm. we have a research where we hope to publish soon where we test the effectiveness of 2FA in reducing the probability or the volume of compromised bank accounts in the Canadian ecosystem. Because mm. in addition to the US, we have a lot, we used to have a lot of people monitoring the Canadian ecosystem, compromised bank accounts. We knew that in 2021, several banks implemented 2FA. We knew the dates. We knew the times. Yeah. So we started looking at what happened before and after. How many compromised bank accounts we were able to find for those three banks before the implementation of 2FA and after. And it's exactly like what you're saying. And once folks deploy the 2FA in those specific months, we're talking about August, you see a really, in one of the banks, it was a great, uh, it was a great change, but for the other, it was a modest decrease in the volume of compromised bank accounts we find. Mm. But then you've seen for the other, the other banks, the ecosystem in general, you see that 
the number of compromised bank accounts we were able to find for them went up. So it's exactly what you were saying, right? I'm just quantifying things, looking at right, the so ecosystem and right. seeing, seeing it. And then what we pride ourselves in is showing people what we, we see. That's why I'm very active on LinkedIn, posting all those video, yeah. the images. This is the raw material, right? And sometimes you right. show people raw material. They don't understand. How did you get this? Like, <laughs> this guy has my check and you have it. How could it be? And but this is what we see. This is what we count. This is how we tally things. This is how we make sense and understand the ecosystem. And I think it's important for us as a discipline, if you want to call it, to be very transparent with respect to the way, with respect to the way you explain people how, what you know. But the fear. Yeah. 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 I think I mentioned to you before we talked prior to this call that there was the guy who I was working with who had a lot of access to Telegram contacted the SBA wanting to give them information. And next thing he's got the FBI checking him out because they think he's the one doing it. And honestly, there was a whole barrier with all these legal lawyers over a weekend where I had to get in, a little bit involved and say, hey, like the, all of this is out there. You guys are acting like, oh my gosh, we can't believe you have this information. How did you get it? Are you kidding me? Okay, let's get over that because everything is out there. What you should be asking isn't how did he get access? It should be, okay, what do we do about it? Because it's already out there. And I think too oftentimes the wrong questions are being asked and we're wasting way too much time doing that. And I'm sure as a researcher, you also understand. I also get very frustrated with that. Sometimes I'm brought into a consulting project and I just want to go fix the problem. But yet the executives want to know come and why. And it's like, yeah, 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 I know. But right now your house is on fire. Can I just that out to trying to find those different or they care about the oddest things but that's neither here nor there but just going back a little bit to the research and the Canadian market with the 2FA and the bank I just want to clarify that what you were saying is when one bank implemented 2FA and another bank that didn't implement 2FA they were the ones who had their accounts go sky high as far as how many accounts were available so it depends right I mean it's like well, yeah. first of all, I'm going to send it you also the depends on one. how you implement 2FA I could we oh can go into the details right. I wanted to I was going to say we always like to say it's That's not right. just what it's how and who I mean That's there's exactly so many right. different I really think that you, so know, will, you and I, I will, get in a room together and we're going to have two sides of the coin of all of this research I'm telling you it'll be so much fun Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So what is Sardine? I mean, other than a small oily fish in the herring family, Sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you. Benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other business models. For some clients, they use Sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. 
Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. I'll definitely send you the research after. So we're writing it in the final stages of us writing it. You're 100% correct, right? With the 2FA, it depends on how you implement it. Because we're talking about three banks, two out of the banks who implemented it, they didn't really see a whole lot of change in the volume of compromised bank accounts. But mm. one of the banks did see that steep decrease. And the question is why, right? You're going to have to write, you're going to have to read the paper. But yeah. you want to correct because it really speaks to the issue of how you implement it. But then it also speaks to the issue of how, how good and how long the effect will persist, speaking. So right. we're talking about 2FA. It could be, and I'm giving you a teaser here, it could be that the effect lasted for a few months and then things went back to be the way they were before the implementation of 2FA. Because of OTP bots or victim assisted? That's right. Yeah. That's right. (laughs) My assumption. And so it also gives you some clue with respect to how the ecosystem responded to that in terms of more compromised bank accounts on banks that did and that did not implement the 2FA. At this point, I think many banks in Canada, they actually implemented 2FA. Many of them implemented them in 2020, some of them in 2019. But what was interesting is that even for the banks who, imp- who, who implemented 2FA in 2020, we've seen an increase in the volume of compromised bank accounts after the implementation of compromised, after the implementation of 2FA in those three banks. And so it's really interesting, right? The ecosystem, the way it responds, the way it adjusts to different, cha- different changes, different attempts to disrupt is fascinating to me. I, and again, Chris, if you think yeah. about it, it's exactly an ecosystem. If you think about an ecosystem in biological terms, you mm. have an intruder right? Someone get into the ecosystem, the whole ecosystem need to change, right? Either there's a battle, right? With the intruder. And then it doesn't really matter what happens, right? If the intruder loses or not, the intruder probably stay there. And then the whole ecosystem adjusts. It's very similar, right? So when I think about fraud and especially online fraud, I'm thinking about an ecosystem, very sophisticated supply chain with different actors, constantly talking to each other with law enforcement and us as fraud fighter trying to, things are always happening in the ecosystem and the ecosystem changes and adapt and adjust. And so we constantly need to be in this movement, you know, to understand and prevent and mitigate in a more efficient way. I'm wondering, I'm sitting here smiling because I'm wondering how many people of my regular listeners, and at least a few of you are coming to mind, who are yelling out zombies because, David, I don't think I've shared with you my zombie theory. I've done this, I used, it used to be my core keynote presentation at conferences and I would always adapt it based off of the type of group it was, if it was online gaming or if it was retail or whatever. But very similarly, a group of us actually at the several years ago, probably almost 14, 15 years ago now, late after, late after a conference at one of the after parties, a full bar. I was talking to some of my buddies that worked for some of the biggest online gaming companies, some of the consoles, some of the apps, some of the companies. And one of them was saying, the problem is you've always got that one person that gets very excited. And I always try to give him credit because he deserves the credit. I just built off of this analogy. The problem is our industry, too many times, companies are looking at fraud like it's a dragon. You're going to leave your village. You're going to slay this dragon. And you always are going to use the same tools every time. The same thing that works to slay the dragon six generations ago is going to work this time. You're going to come back to your village and you're going to be celebrated. And then you're never going to have to worry about another intruder again. But 
online fraud is a lot like zombies. It's not a dragon. They're constantly regenerating. And as soon as we put one thing into place, they're going to adapt and morph to no longer have that bother them anymore. And they're going to keep at it. And instead of going away, they're just going to keep coming in droves and sometimes growing bigger. I've definitely expanded on that quite a bit. And one time I found out after presenting it at a conference that HBO was in the audience the season that Game of Thrones was in had just come out. So they're very excited about that. But I actually know that at least a couple of uh, people who have applied for jobs recently have used that analogy, say, hey, I think you cannot attack this like it's a dragon. You can't. And oh, by the way, the, one of the biggest things that fraud fighters, we all can relate to so much and you and your team probably can too, is when you're fighting a zombies, you don't have time to go back to your village and be celebrated. And also your village most of the time doesn't even know how much in battle you are all the constant time. But so my kind of the point of it was always, you can't just be thinking about the tool or the what you're what specific problem you're trying to combat right now because you have to think about how they're going to morph and change and sometimes you can do that by seeing how they've morphed and changed to companies going ahead of you and already putting steps in place other times you can do it by just studying this ecosystem i am not an academic in fact i'm a college dropout, kind of regrettably, but i geek out over the same things you do from a different perspective and that is learning the adaptations. And I often will get sidetracked because I get so excited about the new type of fraud and I get down in that rabbit hole. And meanwhile, I could be doing very well for myself and having a good set of business if I just focused on the kind of fraud that a lot of the companies I worked with had five, 10 years ago that companies are still struggling with. I'm like, no, no, no. And sometimes it's a problem on this podcast because we'll talk about topics too early. Talked about refund fraud three years ago and I have companies now saying, what do we do? And I'm like, wait, we talked about that, but that doesn't mean it's over. Just I definitely can relate to that. And I think something that you've said is you really can't figure out like how to, you know, fix the problem unless you understand that ecosystem, right? Whether we're talking about the deeps or we're talking the deep sea or we're talking about zombies or whoever we want to picture them. And I think that's why I wanted to talk to you is because that's oftentimes the missing piece in our industry is we might have a glimpse of it. And there's various reasons why private companies don't want their people going on the dark web and joining these groups. I also don't think it's the best use of time because like you said, you have been so much time and energy to invest in creating these sock puppets and put and keeping them up and doing all this, but also you can just get in one group. Okay. You can only see through one peak hole, so to speak. You can't see the full vast system or the ocean floor. Just wrapping up on this conversation, and I know we're going to have another one for Thursday, which I'm really excited to dive into. What are some of the things that you find that the fraud prevention side often gets wrong or doesn't understand about that ecosystem, whether it's about the different policies or processes or technology they put in place, or whether it's about the people that are committing the crime? I know it's a very open-ended question. Companies and the people, fraud fighters who work for those companies, playing, they're part of the ecosystem. I really like this this image, right, of an ecosystem. It's biological and we're all part of it, right? Mm -hmm. the companies play a very important role in the ecosystem. And the way I'm thinking about it, companies is this huge beast. And the fraudsters, I mean, the fraudsters and uh, anyone else who's trying to get in those companies are like parasites, right? They're constantly mm. trying to suck them. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was about to say a beast that they're feeding off of. So a parasite's uh, perfect. Yeah. Look right. at us just building so, this analogy. Yeah, I love it. 
So to me, what's the best way to get rid of parasite? I mean, the, fir- the first problem is to acknowledge that there's this issue, right? So, someone you don't want to, you don't want to have anything to do with, right, is sucking up your resources, right? Now, some of us have this misconception that if we do things the way we did them 20 years ago, we'll just keep the things at bay, right? And things will not be as bad as they are. Things will not go south. Mm-hmm. And we will simply keep afloat. Problem. Yeah is that the fraudster are smarter than that. And they acknowledge, they understand that once this sort of perspective prevails, they can suck a whole lot of resources. And, uh, and they can feed and, their families uh, and they can train more people. Yeah. And they can keep multiplying. They do that. The company is getting to a position where so many resources have been lost and it's, and it's a big deal. And now they have to start from scratch. So I think the major problem that I'm identifying and that I've identified in the industry is arrogance. Folks have respect to the way they mm-hmm. deal with it. They understand fraud. No matter what you tell them, you will not convince them to think about it in a different way. But because of that, we used to do things in a certain way. We have the fraud loss built into our budget. And as long as we do not surpass that, so we're good. And so this pers- perspective, right, this misconception, right, that things will remain they are, in terms of losses, right, in terms of the lack of interference to the organization and the way the organization does things, it's completely is flawed. So to me, that is the major issue, right? Mm-hmm. So we're used to do things and we simply continue to do them, even though the fraudsters realize that yeah, your identity could be spoofed like this nowadays. Yep. And we still use all this technology to authenticate your identity using Marvel licenses. Come on, are you kidding me? And yet I see more and more financial institutions and government use the same technology in order to authenticate folks' identity. I see a lot of checks, yeah. uh, stolen checks. It's, it costs like, what, $20 to manufacture a fake driver license with a payee name on it. Go to the local Walmart, cash it like this. Come on. Mm-hmm. So again, not being able to think outside of the box, doing things this, you know, like you used to do in the last 20 years will not mm. solve all the issue. You have to be out there. You have to understand what people are working on. So people talk a lot about academics, like they like to sit in the ivory tower and then they study the world this way. And then, but reality is completely different, right? Than the theories <laughs> they come up with. In a way, I think about fraud fighting in a similar way, right? Because you have fraud fighters buying technologies, buying, based their, their fraud fighting strategies on these misconceptions and then expecting that things will be the same, right? Frosters evolve. Frosters know what they're doing. They're smart. You're out there talking to them, understanding how they work, understand the supply chain, understand how they get the different types of commodities they use in order to steal all this money from the financial industry, from the mm-hmm. government, whatever, then you will never be able to win. So this is to me the major problem we have in, in, in our ecosystem. And the fact that, again, there's not a whole lot of research around it. So that, that is something that we're in evidence-based cybersecurity research group are trying to change. I, oh my goodness, we are such kindred spirits. I kind of had a feeling, but now I'm like really geeking out because looping back on what you said, I couldn't agree more. I think that for the longest time, there was a limit, right? There was almost like a ceiling to how much fraud there could be because there was a barrier to entry because the dark web, a lot of people in the world, and there's different reasons. We'll talk more on Thursday's episode about the different types of groups and some of what they're doing and what their specialties are and all that. If we're looking at 
just one specific type of group that I've observed and noticed. There's a lot of people that just assumed, oh, committing fraud is really hard. It's really difficult. You need all this information. You need a Tor browser. You need an onion router. You need to figure out all these things. And there's no way to do it. Now you can just go buy a tutorial for 20 bucks and it'll give you step by step. And if you can figure out a video game, you can figure out how to steal an identity like that. You can steal 20 grand. I don't know how many times I lightly peruse some of the public groups on Telegram. I will never, ever say that I'm an expert, but it helps me so much to understand what's going on, both for the specific companies I work with, but also the companies that are similar to them or, okay, I could see this also working at this kind of company and that kind of company. If I can, these guys will figure it out eventually. So I've noticed there's, gosh, if we really want to talk about like domestically in the US, I feel like there's been this whole big group of younger, usually men in their 20, teens and 20s that are gamers that have figured out, wow, I can just go on Telegram and make all this money and I don't have to go back to a minimum wage job after PPP. Why would I do that? And once PPP got out, now I'm going to go to refund fraud. It's a lot of the same people we see doing the same thing using the same kind of tools. So I think that's one of the reasons, right? To your point of as corporations, as companies, as governments, we can't just assume Okay, there's always gonna, it's always going to stay beneath this percentage. We can keep it. I also hate those four words of acceptable level of loss because personally, I don't think there's any acceptability of loss, but it's frustrating to me. But it's something where I think those of us that really have the drive and the passion to fight fraud, we, it drives us crazy too because we're like, hey, I understand that it used to be the case where we could safely say, hey, if we use this tool and we do this and we do that, we can keep, we can predict that we're going to keep it under this. But now using your analogy of these parasites, they have multiplied. It's like there was this massive about a superfood that came in to the environment during the pandemic, during a perfect storm of geopolitical issues with people sitting at home, with the connection of the internet, with all these different, with the stagnation of the economy in different places, all these things, a perfect storm to now have them just regenerate to the point where it's not just 10x, it's like 1,000. And to your point, companies that are trying to protect them can no longer think of it as this like linear cat and mouse game that it used to be. It's just not anymore. What I think you're 100% correct, right? In that sense, the teenagers play a very important role in this because mm. we see a lot of teenagers wanting in to conduct fraud, to, to uh, engage in fraud. So yep. I can show you videos of kids, like kids like between the ages of 13 to 17, calling yep. out their network, asking who can hook them up with a, with a fraud. It's Literally, like gaming. You, you see all these folks, right? Flashing thousands of dollars right, over their arms. Right? On I Instagram. Mean, I yep. like on Starbucks for, I don't know, $10 an hour. If I take a stolen check, right, I deposit it, I can make. $5,000. And you don't see any repercussions at all. Oh, I remember talking to a secret service agent 10 years ago saying, we're seeing a lot of street criminals go to cyber fraud. And I'm like, really? Why? And he goes, partially because the few cyber criminals that we put in jail, they're talking to somebody who's in prison for years because of a dime bag of weed. And they're asked, what are you in for? Oh, I stole $20 million. And they're like, and you only have six months? They're probably getting the timing wrong, but like the specifics wrong. And huh, interesting. And then now you're seeing, and I know we're going to get into a lot of this in just a, a next one, but basically you'll see a lot of people, like you're now seeing these giant drug organizations that are using 
fraudulent money too, because it's easy. The only reason why not is a conscience. And that to some, there's different things that drive different people. And I think before the call, you and I both were kind of joking about not many people go into fraud fighting for the money because obviously if we cared about the money, we could go on the other side or we could go work for various sets of letters that are in a consultancy that can just sit and tell you about the problem you had last year. That's not what we go in, but there's different things that drive people. I think another thing I see from the industry side that just kind of explains a little bit about what you're saying as far as the misconception and the thing and the issues that we get wrong on this side And that is the fact that there's so many different types of companies now. It used to just be there were banks, there were retailers, there were this, right? Now the internet has created so much innovation and fraudsters are such good early users and early adopters of innovation. We just look at neo banks and how much neo and digital banks have changed the online banking fraud landscape, whether we're looking at check fraud, whether we're looking at carding any of these different types of fraud. And they all leverage each other, right? So you go manipulate this platform to then manipulate that platform. And I think a lot of it has to do with the video gaming because it's all about problem solving, right? They're just, we're trying to solve the problem from the opposite way. They're trying to create the problem. And so it's easier for them. Okay, so I need the first 12 digits of a credit card. Okay, I saw that you can do that with these new, and this is actually a new method that I recently learned about. I'm sure you learned about it six months ago. Some of these smaller companies that offer credit monitoring where you don't need that much information about the person. It's probably stuff that is easy to find and you can get the first 12 digits of their credit card numbers. Now all I need is the last four. Well, I know that if I look at these other types of websites, I can get the last four. Okay, I can't use the Visa or the MasterCard because they're going to ask me for the CVV and the expiration date. But I can use the private label card because, you know, that department store knows that most people don't carry those, their private label cards in their pocket. They call them underwear drawer cards of all things. That's like a corporate term because they know if you have to go to get your, you know, I'm sorry, guys that work at these places. I'm just going to say three of them just to give an idea, but I'm not narrowing anyone out. Your Kohl's, your Nordstrom, your Macy's, you know, your Best Buy, your Walmart, something like that. One of those cards, you probably don't have it in your wallet every day. So you're like, oh, I'll just put in my Visa card. Well, they want you to use their card. Okay, we're not going to ask for the last three digits. Okay, now fraudsters now, okay, I now have 16 digits. I can't use these and these, but I can use those. Or I can find a website that doesn't ask me for the last three digits. Of the card. Sure. Or I can call the person and say I'm from their bank and fraud happened. And I just need to, for security purposes, make sure that they have their card in their hand and need them to read the last three digits and the expiration date. Like I get so frustrated because you and I, and I'm also just so excited because I think you and I both see it from different perspectives, but are seeing the same thing. And it's this adaptation. And I couldn't agree more that we as people who care about this need to be preaching it so much more to our leadership. Now, the challenge is it's a chicken and egg game with academics and with surveys and with industry data is a lot of leaders of companies and executives will say, but how is it changing in the market? We don't have them. I'm sorry. The ecosystem is changing right now. We can't look back. There are a lot of industries, there are a lot of departments where you can say, okay, two years ago when this company implemented this type of product, just as the kind of sales graph that they saw. Okay, that's not how fraud works. You can't predict it on a graph. I think you're 100% correct there. And you touched, I think it's the mis- misconception of you know how to deal with fraud, but also the companies. Yeah. Yes. Just talked about it, right? The companies, they get a lot of money and they spend a lot of time to solve fraud this way. But fraud changes on a daily basis. 
So I spent millions of dollars to develop this product. Talking about the vendor side. Uh-huh. That was actually literally my next point. In my head, I was talking about like the like the banks and the merchants who are saying like, hey, but you're absolutely right. But on the vendor side too, that was the next, that was the next thing I was thinking of when you were that were are the causes of the effect that you talked about. And they'll double down and they then they realize we don't want to keep paying in R and D. So we're just going to keep using the same tool that worked five, six years ago or even two years ago. And who do I get frustrated with them? And they know it. And that's exactly why we're at where we at this point, right? Because of those tools, because of the fact that those tools did not adapt, the, the, these tools could not really identify the emerging trends in the ecosystem in a fast enough manner. And that's why we are still now, 2023, talking about check fraud as the number one fraud that banks are experiencing simply because the industry couldn't figure it out. They were doing things in a right way. It's their way. You can dissuade them. We were talking to everybody about this issue starting January, 2021, even before that, right? Nobody believed me, right? There was a lot of pushback. Who writes checks? That's what they asked me. Who writes checks? And I'm telling listen, I don't know checks, but I see thousands of checks on a monthly basis, the platforms I'm at. Maybe you want to pay attention. And like SBA, like PPP, when we talked about it, when we started to see that and we started to imagine emerge in 2020, we were right. Yeah. Here we're there. So the mm-hmm. industry needs to focus more, less on developing products that cost a lot of money and at the end of the day, do not really meet their goal and more in understanding the ecosystem and trying to figure out how to disrupt and how to develop products that will talk to the ecosystem. I know that we have to end this episode here. I have so many things to say on the Vendor industry side, I it's very frustrating, especially as coming on the heels of being at what we call the Super Bowl of fraud prevention conferences with all of the new tech and all of the new vendors. And then a lot of the old ones, too, that are promising the same things. It's so frustrating to me because I and I can't wait actually to talk to you about this when we're not recording because I don't say specific company names when I'm recording. But I'm very interested to hear some of the things that I hear from the users, right, the companies that purchase these vendor products and say, okay, we thought they would work and they worked on a POC, but then once we put it in place, it only worked for a little while and then it just went stagnant and they're not investing anymore because they're so focused on their exit. They're so focused on their IPO or their acquisition that they don't give a shit anymore about all these things. And there, there's some of them that I bet if you and I traded name, I bet we would isolate. Oh, I bet that the ones that the merchants hate the most are the ones that the banks hate the most and the ones that those companies just love. I learned a new term this year, this week. It was toxic revenue. And that's going to be a whole other side topic that I'm going to share another time on another podcast. But the companies that love the fact that they're going to use our product no matter what, and I don't care if it works or not. The companies and products that their clients and users are like, these don't work anymore. I bet those are the ones that you're seeing these guys love or be able to figure out how to use. And I know for a fact that a lot of them have figured out, you know, exactly how to fig- how to know, okay, what fraud tool, what transaction monitoring system are they using? What, you know, processes are they putting in place? Okay, we'll just work around them. It's completely like an ecosystem. To the point where in 2020, when PPP was ramping, the criminals yeah. opted to go and attack states which used a specific company's mm-hmm. products. They yep. opted to attack those states. They opted to try and use their authentication mechanism. Right. I'm not going to say the name right either. Oh, I know. I'm screaming it in my head. Yeah. And it's the one that and somehow got all of the governments to buy it too, which was not the one for 
I'm very proud to say, hopefully after this long in my career, I would be horrified if this was wrong, that when I provided my expertise to the state that I work with on what product and solution I thought would be best for them for ID verification, product that I suggested was not even close to that product. But yeah, the, you would see the criminals, you're absolutely right, say, hey, we want to hit those ones. We want to pick the states that implement. We want them to implement that tool because it's so easy. And meanwhile, you have the CEO going from government to government, and I still don't know how it happened. None of us do, because honestly, a lot of us had never heard of it before, selling it and making millions off of it. When it didn't work, you might as well, you need more of a gating factor. You need levels. You can't just have one, one hammer, so to speak, one tool. And you certainly can't have one that doesn't know how to keep up with everything that's on the market. Misconception. Misconception. It's, I think it's a very important part of what we're experiencing right now. You can't fight fraud the way you, today, the way you fought fraud 20 years ago. It will not work. Oh, David, music to my ears. I think I say on a daily basis, you can't fight fraud with yesterday's tools. No, you can't. But unfortunately, there's also a barrier to creating today's tools because you know, there's so much money to even just get a place in the booth or just to tell people about it. So there's just so many things wrong. But I am obviously enjoying this conversation so much. I am so glad that you offered to continue it with me for Thursday. We will be back talking more about some specific types of fraud. This conversation was so good just to kind of understand your and why it is what it is. And just I think we've really I think we've really come together on a really cool visualization as well of the ecosystem as well, which I'm excited to see where you take that. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.